Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour, episode number 19, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. And me, Ravi Abbott. And the show's out every single Friday, available from iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, our website, theretrohour.com. And every week on the show, Ravi and I run through the big retro and technology stories of the week. And then the second half of the show is dedicated to a special guest. And what a guest we've got this week. Oh my God, we've got Dr. David Doak. And David Doak is... A Nintendo legend. He worked with Rare. You know, the guys from Donkey Kong Country and bought you GoldenEye and Time Splitters. So this is a, a real FPS Nintendo kind of episode. Absolutely. Anyone that you know loved the N64, I think it's widely regarded GoldenEye's the best game on the platform, isn't it, really? Yeah, that's um, all I played. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it was like he's got an edge as well. The fact that he had four-player split-screen multi-FPS on a, on a console, you know what I mean? It was unheard of back then. Yep. And uh, we'll get the inside story on the development, the challenges that they faced, and then, uh, you know, kind of where things eventually fell apart. Yeah, the, the early models of the N64 with yeah. uh, silicon graphics and stuff. It's really interesting stuff, guys. Absolutely. So uh, David's going to be on the show in around 25, 30 minutes from now. Before that, straight to this week's story then, and we've kind of covered this. Uh, this has been around for a couple of years, but now... We're just days away from release. I can't believe it. Finally, <laughs> finally getting released. Shadow of the Beast on the PlayStation 4. This um, is it. For you Amiga guys and you old school gamers, Shadow of the Beast was such a big title. Now, this has been in development. We first heard about this, what, about two years ago now? I think maybe even longer ago. Yeah, yeah. It was, it's been ages. And, uh, you know, there wasn't any official kind of release date for a long time. But now, um, well, at least according to Sony... We are just a few days away, and this game's going to be coming out on Tuesday, the 17th of May. So literally, like, what, four days away now? Yeah, and there's a little surprise that's there is. going to be in the game. For us old-school fans. Yeah, a little wink back to the past. The Amiga original is going to be bundled with it as well. Yeah, the 1989. I don't think they're going to put it on a floppy. <laughs> <laughs> that would be awesome if they did, though, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so I imagine this is going to be... Um, DLC that comes with it and I, I haven't actually exactly seen how the original Amiga version is going to work but it could be you know like in a lot of games with the HD updates you kind of press like a button and it takes you back to how the game used to look oh that would be cool that might, would be really cool I I've, imagine it'll be like that it, or it might be a, just a crappy UAE the fact that there is going to be a new generation that will discover this game now as well but I think a lot of people that have been excited about it are guys like us who played the original back in the old days so uh, nice little nod from the team there and uh, after such a long wait I'm looking forward to playing it as well yeah, a bit of parallax scrolling again. Yeah. <laughs> right then, some Mega Drive news now. And uh, this is a game that's been discovered that was unfinished. Akira nearly came out on the Mega Drive. Yes, and uh, this guy's saying on his website, Funstock, mm-hmm. that there are no other Akira games. There are Akira games. Yeah, it wasn't all on the Amiga. Yeah, and it was awful. <laughs> it was really, really bad. It was on the CD32, wasn't it, as well? Yeah, and uh, it was incompletable, I think, because it was so badly done oh really yeah. so I'm not a massive anime fan but I know I've seen Akira before and it's generally considered one of the best you know anime movies of all time isn't it well yeah and this is a, a Sega Genesis version mm-hmm. um, and it was taken from CES in 1994 so someone's just basically gone up with a video camera and filmed this prototype version of Akira and they found the footage now yeah, and it's it's looks much better than the Amiga one. It's got full animated sequences. It's got kind of even FPS mini sections in it. And ninety four, um, we're talking the other Doom came out. Yeah, which like yeah. You know what I mean, it was cutting edge for the time. And it's saying here, yeah, they're in the process of making the game for the Super Nintendo, Mega Drive, and a Mega CD version as well. Ah. Um, obviously, the demo day of the show, but then. It just didn't happen in the end. No, it might be some gameplay stuff somewhere, but, you know, they've got sections in it here which are racing sections, platforming. Mm-hmm. They've got fighting stuff on a lift, which looks quite like Streets of Rage 2. Oh, wow. Yeah, <laughs> it looks really, really good. But, you know, often with this kind of stuff, um, these kind of stories, you know, come up again and then maybe the original, like, developers and stuff who, you know, think, oh, I've actually got a copy of that in my attic still and, uh, you know, yeah. I don't know if people were interested anymore. <laughs> Then that's how the code eventually gets released and people finally have a chance to play it. I mean, you know, famously we had um, Galahad on who uh, eventually, you know, released that Amiga version of uh, Putty Squad. Yeah, 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 just just from the attic, wasn't it? Yeah, that had been in the vaults of yeah. uh, System 3 for years, but obviously like, the developers and the companies all move on. I think no one's bothered about it anymore. But then to see this kind of reaction, people are like, oh, that game looked amazing, what happened to it? And especially with Akira, because it's such a cult. Yeah. It was such a cult film at the time and it kind of, you know, was one of the first big 
manga films in the West. Yeah, well, it's like, you know, like, like I said, you know, somebody who's not a fan of anime, I watched that movie and it's like, it was accessible to everyone, I think, wasn't it? And yeah, you had to watch it about three times to understand it. <laughs> <laughs> but I remember seeing the adverts all over for the Akira game, though. So, yeah, you know, yeah. they're showing it at CS and all that, so it's kind of sad that it never came out. Especially, I mean, if you are interested in what it looked like, this video is on YouTube, and uh, every week, everything we talk about, we put the show notes up on the website, theretrohour.com. Now, have you got a Walkman still anywhere? Uh, no, I haven't, and uh, I don't think I ever had one. I kind of missed that Walkman period. I was just home cassette ghetto blasters. Yeah. Have them when I was skating and stuff, and then mini discs later on. I, I like kind of dodgy, like you know, cheap Alba ones and stuff like that. Never had a proper Sony one of the tapes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> awful things. But um, believe it or not, if you have got an original Sony Walkman uh, lurking around in your attic, it could apparently make you rich. So these are selling for a lot of money now. Yeah, yeah, all over eBay. There's high expensive listings of Walkmans. So uh, a 1979 original sold for £600. Wow. Which is crazy, these hipsters. <laughs> it is though, isn't it? You know, <laughs> it must be going it. yeah. But we talked about it before that, you know, cassettes have had a bit of a revival recently. It is blatantly the hipster market that are doing it. But if you have any bit of technology long enough, what you should do is as soon as something new comes out, you should buy it, put it in your attic... Keep it unboxed for like 20, 30 years. That'll make your fortune, wouldn't well, it? Well, this guy's even saying, you know, uh, people are selling stacks of uh, broken ones yeah. and stuff for like 83 quid. <laughs> you know, these are these are broken, unrepairable ones, you know. I mean, if you've got a crappy one that I used to have from my Argos that cost 30 quid back in the day and was like, you know, some like cheap brand, it's going to be worthless, isn't it? But I think... Well, this says Aouya as well. Oh, really? So, yeah. <laughs> I might keep hold of them a bit longer then. <laughs> but um, I think, you know, from looking at the, the listings here on eBay... The ones that are fetching the, the top dollar are the original iconic Sony Walkman. And let's be fair, you know, the Sony Walkman was probably the biggest revolution in music. Totally portable music. Always you know, where it all started, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. And even those big old ghetto blasters as well. I think they're probably going to be quite high value. Do you know some of the old original ones? Yeah, wouldn't like to pay the shipping cost on them though, would you? <laughs> no, or the batteries. So yeah, if you've got any looking around, they could earn you top dollar. If you yep. stick them on eBay. Now, were you a fan of the game Turrican 2? Yeah, I was. Mm-hmm. I wasn't very good, but yeah, it's a good game. Great platformer game, wasn't it? Well, Very, very kind of the platformer of Europe. And it you was, know, Turrican. I think Turrican as well, the music on it, isn't it, as well? That's one thing it's oh, the, famous for. The music was banging, yes. Well, um, someone who's a massive fan of this game has posted on the English Amiga board. And uh, what he's done is, he loved the game so much, he decided that he kind of wanted a... Uh, a new version of it, we could say. So his name's Excel, EXL, uh, posted on EAB, and he's wrote a level editor for Turrican 2. For how he's wrote in Python and C. Yeah, so what you can do is you can go on and basically use all the graphics and elements and create your own maps. Of the oh, game. excellent. So, like, just all the sprites and build your own platformers. Yeah, it, by the looks of this, it's just, you know, drag and drop. That's, that's really cool because I know a lot of old Amiga games go into that. Just old games of general systems like mm-hmm. PC and DOS came with level editors. Yeah. And the ones we were saying the other day with level editors seem to be a little bit more successful because they get more life out of it. Well, I think, you know, essentially from this, you can make like, you know, Turrican 2.5, can't you? <laughs> You're yeah, the game. It, yeah. And there is, because I've, you know, I'm, I, my first machine was a Commodore Plus 4. And recently I've been downloading a lot of games on like SD card and stuff for it. And there is uh, on like the Plus 4 download sites. A lot because those games are quite easy to hack and take the graphics. But a lot of fans have kind of made their own versions of the games. So you might have like a, like a platform of a little stranger main character to like, you know, have an alien head or something. And yeah, sort of yeah, that would be good. A whole Turrican modding scene might emerge well, yeah, from exactly. this. You essentially get, you know, the elements of your favourite game, but, you know, new levels to try out and stuff and... Kind of breathes a bit of life back into it. Now, he's posted the, the source code to this as well on GitHub. Interestingly, though, the only version that I can find on GitHub is what claims to be a level editor for the Amiga CDTV version of it. Okay. So I, I, w- I wouldn't know how many people have that version. Well, how many people have a CDTV to start with? Secondly, apparently Tur- uh, Turrican 2 is one of the most rare Amiga CDTV games. One went on eBay a couple of years ago for 800 quid. Oh, God. So. Oh, God. <laughs> It might be a little bit niche releasing a level editor for that version, but yeah. um, from what I remember that, though, it literally was the Amiga floppy port just dropped onto a CD-ROM. Yeah, probably. So quite, why, quite why it's been tight like that, <laughs> I don't know. I imagine it works on the normal Turrican 2 as well. Um, but yeah, that might be one to add to your uh, CD32 collection. Yeah. Oh, God, I'm not going to delve into CD TV games. <laughs> I'm going to stick with CD32 at the moment. Have you got any new CD32 stuff recently? 
Uh, I bought one which was called Global Effect at the uh, yeah, yeah. Play Blackpool event. You were talking is... about that last week. Have you played it? Uh, yeah, it's all right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> With most CD32 games. More just to look pretty on the shelf yeah. than anything else. <laughs> Interestingly, though, talking about the CD32, and this kind of links into our next story as well, um, you know the CD32 had a chip in it called the Akiko? Akiko, yes. Yeah, and that, that was, was the, a... a blitter converter, wasn't it? Or chunky to... Chunky to planner, yeah. wasn't it? And, uh, well, there's been a few tests recently on Amiga.org. This guy's basically been looking at using that chip because not many games actually use that chip back in the day. Okay. And it was designed to make stuff like first person and shooters and all that, you know, yeah. kind of run a lot smoother on the Amiga. No, no, not many games actually implemented it either. I think Microcosm used it at the beginning when they had that kind of, you know, to do the video full yeah. screen. Yeah. So used it for that. But literally there's only about two or three games using it. But what they've done is they've got a, basically an add-on to the game Gloom Deluxe which yes, was a first-person yes, shooter. Yeah. And, you know, the original Gloom came out in the CD32 yeah. and it was, you had to run it in, like, a postage stamp size window and it was a bit blocky. But they've actually put an Akiko um, layer in here so it uses that chip. And apparently that performs like a, a 6 out of 30. It runs really smooth. Oh, wow. Okay, like 28 so frames a second or something, so... Maybe with a bit of optimization, they might have had a nice... Um... <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So it's crazy, though, just to think that chip lay dormant for like 20 years and no really well, used it. Well, that's kind of what happened with the uh, Jaguar, wasn't it? Mm. There was all these processors they could use, and then they ended up... Um... Kind of using the easy route, yeah. <laughs> and uh, when programming it, use the 68k instead, didn't they? Yeah. But I think, it, especially with systems like the Jag and the CD32, they're only on the market for like six months. Yeah, there wasn't enough development time put in, and yeah, yeah, code the developers did... hated them by then, anyway. So. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, a lot of lazy ports, like you said, and just people didn't really have time to learn the hardware and get the most out of it. So I think it's cool at 20 years down the line, though. Like the fans are kind of figuring out what you can do with these hidden little features and stuff. Well, like that. well, talking of ports, Dan, yeah, this um, is crazy. This is crazy, and quite a lot of people have sent this, and actually, my boss at work sent this, which mm. is really good. It runs Doom. Right. and it's basically we talk a lot about systems that can run Doom, and this is everything that can run Doom. And, literally uh, every platform that can literally run Literally everything. This guy's got <laughs> Doom running on payphones in New York City. My word. <laughs> I'm looking at it on a, on a digital camera from the year 2000. Yep. <laughs> running on as well. Uh, like you said, yeah, payphones, ATMs. <laughs> it's like toasters. Yeah. In-flight <laughs> entertainment systems, a piano. A piano. <laughs> on the little LCD screen, a digital oh, piano. Uh, old white iPods. Yeah, because there was those oscilloscope ones I mentioned. That is well. crazy, isn't it? I'm looking at it. An ATM. How on earth do you even get hold of an ATM to test it out on? <laughs> like maybe maybe one that's glitched, just, you know, stand there and try and install Zoom. But we've made jokes on the show before that, you know, everything can run Doom, but by the looks of this list, um, it actually can. Yeah, yeah. Which yeah. Is, which so is pretty crazy. go on there and check which crazy street items or anything you can... Maybe load up Doom on your microwave at home or something. I'm sure you can. You know, actually, speaking of FPSs as well, did you realise that Quake is 20 years old next month? Oh, my God. Really? Yeah. I was in um, Asda today in Retro Gamer magazine. This, You know, obviously, magazines work a month ahead, don't they? Front cover is like, yeah, Quake is 20. I'm not going to say I remember when I got my first official copy of Quake. I remember when I got my first pirate disc of Quake. Yeah. And I was like, <laughs> oh, my God. But, dude, it was like, you know, after playing Doom before that, it was like just... Next level, yeah, mind blowing. It, it yeah. was the uh, polygons coming in, wasn't it? That was, uh... well, I remember when you know, because I had an Amiga at the time, but I played it at a friend's house, and I remember kind of the holy grail after Doom was quite coming to the Amiga, and it eventually did. But I think it was about 1998. I, I'm afraid, out. Dan, I'd, I'd left the scene by then. I was a, I was a PC gamer. You traitor! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that gets us on to our next topic as well, actually. So, say you've got a friend who um, wants to get into retro gaming, mm-hmm. and they're not at the moment. What system? Would you recommend they get? I I would recommend a Raspberry Pi, and that would be because you can do so much stuff with it. Mm-hmm. I've just installed uh, on Kodi, which is a media center, an Amiga emulator, mm-hmm. uh, PlayStation, just everything. The Dreamcast one's really hard to install. <laughs> All the other stuff, and you can just plug a, a you know Microsoft Xbox controller in there mm-hmm. or anything. And just play away. It's really, really what, nice. You got stuff like Retro Pie as well. Yeah, Retro Pie custom build with yeah. all the emulators built in. You know what? Because I was going to say, I was thinking about this before, and I thought, you know, emulation didn't even cross my mind. But to be fair, that's probably like the easiest way of doing it, isn't <laughs> yeah. it? and the cheapest. To be fair, yeah. If we're thinking of original hardware, I was thinking of this before. You know what would I recommend? Because it's actually a thread on Reddit. A lot of people are replying with their own opinions and stuff. I'd say if you have to get original hardware, it'd be a toss up between um, Mega Drive or Super Nintendo with a, with an EverDrive cart. Yeah, or you could get the, um, what is it, the Super Nintendo mm. with the adapters. 
Okay. So, so you could run all the old stuff in there as well. What, like a game, like, GameCube like, ones? Like and, and, yeah, and I mean, yeah. yeah, I mean, you get the, the GameCube Ga- Game kind of add-on stuff. Game, Game Boy, Boy, Game Boy add-on, yeah, yeah, that was it. I mean, I, I think those systems, though, the kind of... I often think if, if you're not a retro game enthusiast at the moment, I think this guy's only about 19, and he wants to kind of experience gaming before his time. I think if you go back to the 8-bit stuff, it might look a bit too primitive. Vectrex. Game. <laughs> <laughs> the one. You were loving the Vectrex, weren't you? Oh, last it weekend. looks so cool, though. It, <laughs> it did, just yeah. looks so clear. <laughs> I've seen them at shows before, but I hadn't really paid, because we've talked about it on, on the podcast before. You know, when you were playing it, I thought, I'll yeah. sit down and have a proper look at this. But yeah, it looked awesome. A bit smaller than I thought it would be, though. Yeah, yeah, tiny. Um, yeah, well, I wouldn't recommend the Vectrex. It's <laughs> no, probably, uh, probably the hardcore end of the scene, that. But I think, you know, if someone said to me, what should I get? I'd say a yeah, Mega Drive probably with... Uh, an EverDrive cart. Then you get all your games on there if you want to experience kind yeah, of like, like maybe a Game Boy, or Game Boy Advance. I thought you know Super Nintendo. A lot of people have been recommending, but if you're going to get original carts, stuff for the Mega Drive is so much cheaper than Nintendo stuff. Yeah, and you can still get the adapters for that. You can get a Game Gear one, can't you? Yeah, well, and I think it's uh, Master, uh, Master System, system yeah. which the Game Gear is essentially just a Master System in a. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. it's it just smaller form, really. You know, if you get an EverDrive for the Mega Drive, um, it runs um, Master System games because there is all the hardware for a Master System inside the Mega Drive. <laughs> this is getting confusing. Yeah. But you can also play Game Gear games straight on it because they are just Master System well, games. Well, we can get even more confusing, which will be if you wanted to go a little bit forward as well, mm-hmm. you could get a Sega CD. Yeah. <laughs> 32 as well. Oh, dude, you're costing serious quids here, though, aren't you? <laughs> I haven't got a 32X for my Mega Drive. And I watch, have you seen that AVGN video that he's done about it? Yeah, like, yeah. A few years ago. And at the end of that, he sets one on fire. And I'm thinking back then, they only cost about 20 quid. They got for about like 130, 140 quid now on eBay. So every time I watch that video, I'm like, no, I'd have had yeah, that. Yeah, I'm interested in them now. Uh, we talked to Tom Kalinsky last yeah. week. It sounds quite good. Yeah, if you missed that episode and you're a fan of Sega, last week's show, like we we chatted to Tom Kalinsky, the former CEO of Sega around that era. And we got some very interesting stories out of him. But actually, after we did that episode, I went home and I put my Mega CD on. I was having a few games on that. <laughs> yeah. I, I thought, you know, I owe it to him. No, I see, yeah, getting nostalgic now. <laughs> now, um, this is quite cool. I've never had the pleasure of doing anything like this. This never happens to me. I'm not lucky enough. But a guy has found an ultra-rare game, Stadium Events for the Nintendo, the NES, at a yard sale, and he paid $2 for it. Oh, nice. I bet I bet he was like, right, calm down. Don't show that you know what this game is. You know? well, Shaking. The, the last one of these that went on eBay went for $8,000. God. It makes you wonder how these like rare games just like you know wind up in these really bizarre places. Is that morally right, though? Would you, would you tell the people at the yard sale, or would you? You just leave them. <laughs> it depends who it is, doesn't it? Because you think if it's like some little old lady, maybe your son's like left his, you know, his collection in the attic and she's just trying to get rid of it and you think, oh, you know, she could earn like eight grand off this. Yeah, yeah. But I don't know. It's a tough one, isn't it? Cause... I suppose you would just be like, I've got it. Woo! <laughs> and then just run away. <laughs> so for those who might not be familiar with this game and why it's so rare, uh, this was a game that Nintendo put out onto the market in 1987. In America, though, at the time, they were getting a license from, uh, there was a series called the Family Fun Fitness Series. So what Nintendo did is they put the game out there, recalled all the copies in North America, re-released it as a title called World Class Track Meet. Okay, so this was like the unofficial name or the, yeah, was the, the buggered name. Well, they put yeah. it out on the market and then yeah. literally like, well, a couple of weeks later they recalled all the copies and sent out these new ones So from the shops, you know. So uh, the PAL version wasn't recalled apparently, but the NTSC version is like rare as hen's teeth. Okay. So, um, yeah, literally it was on the market for like three months. So Well, lucky guy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So he's got himself a little $8,000 investment there. I wonder what he'll do with it. Would he stick <laughs> yeah. it on eBay or would he keep Maybe it? Maybe buy more Nintendo games. <laughs> <laughs> That's the thing, though. I mean, like, you know, it, you can play the game, dead, you can download the ROMs and play it on an emulator. You know, no one cares about that. But it's, again, it's having this, you know, a rare slice of gaming history in your collection. Sell it to Pat the Nespunk. I'm sure, I'm sure he's got several copies. Probably. <laughs> now, in a minute, we're going to be talking to uh, David Doak, of course, uh, the guy who was behind GoldenEye on the N64. Um, quite well-timed, a guy has actually done a real-life version of GoldenEye in the most unlikely of places. Yeah, so he he was on holiday uh, and he was visiting Alcatraz and he had a GoPro and some Nerf guns. (laughs) As you do. uh, As you do, just going around. So he's done a whole recreation of GoldenEye on Alcatraz with proximity mines. Yep. 
people running into walls, <laughs> awful hitting. It's really good. What's amazing about this as well is kind of overlaid the golden eye sound effects over it too. And even like, you know, you can tell they've played the game loads because all the, the way they're walking and the actions and everything were exactly the like costumes the as well. They're, they're also dressed up in the similar styles. Yeah, he's walking around like a tuxedo and all that, isn't he? Which is what must people around them have thought? <laughs> <laughs> I imagine they've got security at Alcatraz. Probably, what the hell are these guys doing? And they're doing like the split screen mode as well. It's all kind of going. Yeah, on, they but... even did Golden Gun in it. <laughs> yeah, it's well, great. this is um, a group of guys called the Dude Bros. The Dude Bros. So yeah. it's very funny, though. It's only about a minute long. They're posting it on Facebook. So we'll uh, we'll drop a link in the show notes. Yeah, at the if, if you get a bit nostalgic after the interview, check absolutely, out absolutely. Now, last week on the show, we talked about H- HD VHS. Yes, we talked about HD VHS, and we were like, "Oh, this is a one-off. You'll never see it." But actually, we are totally wrong. There's a guy called Techmoan who's mm-hmm. really good YouTuber, amazingly, and he goes through the whole thing about HD VHS. Mm-hmm. And it turns out it's for early adopters because they didn't have a format to put it on. They could put it on disc. And there was quite a few films released for it, actually. iRobot was the last one. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, what was that, um, like 2003, four? wasn't that one? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, it, was, it was a really odd kind of format. But this guy's channel's amazing as well, Techmo. And I've, I've gone and checked it, and there yeah. was Philips Rivals to Minidisc that I've seen. That were I was like, watching him the other day. He was doing VCD versus, versus like Super Blu-ray 4K or something. It was yeah, like really he's, he's a really, really uh, knowledgeable guy, this is. And uh, he shows you, you know, the full unit and stuff. It's it's really interesting if you want to learn more about obsolete and dead formats. So thanks for our listeners for informing <laughs> us about that. Stuart McNeil, you posted on the uh, Facebook. Cheers for that. Yeah, we did get a few tweets going, Oi, dickheads, it has come out. <laughs> you know, I'm like, all right, hands up. We don't really know. We, we shouldn't have relied on the Daily Mail article. Yeah. <laughs> now, a final story before we chat to David Doak. Um, now, we've talked about the, the Vampire 2 for the Amiga 600, which... Uh, Still waiting for your video, Dan. Oh, dude, I'm, I'm not even joking, right? I, for, maybe, you know, you just listen to the podcast and you don't watch on YouTube. Um, we've both got YouTube channels. I do quite a bit of Amiga stuff on mine. Yeah, um, David Doak's on mine. We'll link that in here. Yeah, you yeah. did video with David Doak. We'll talk more about that in a minute. Um, but basically, this card for the, the Amiga 600 that turns it into the fastest classic Amiga, FPGA, bumps it up to about 150 megahertz, I think, yeah. on the latest core. Yeah. Well, they've just released um, the Silver 5 core. So this is basically the fifth version of the um, the software that you can flash onto the FPGA. Okay. And I installed this on mine, and not only does it give you bug fixes and some even more speed-ups on the CPU as well, mm-hmm. the main thing is, though, the screen modes that you can get. Like, you're talking, like, 1360 by 768 screen modes. You're talking, like, the HD resolution on an Amiga 600. Wow. In native yeah. as well. Well, this is... It comes out the HDMI port on the Vampire and goes into your TV. But the problem is... That at the moment, it only outputs through the HDMI port. If you want to play like Amiga games and stuff, you've got to do it through your RGB on the uh, back natively. of the Amiga. Yeah, yeah, so you've got to switch between. I've got my Amiga 600 going into my. I've got like a little um, LCD TV I'm running out on at the moment. If I want to play a game, I've got to switch it up to SCART mode. Yeah, Then back the to the workbench. Yeah. Back, yeah, so it's a bit annoying. Um, but I was actually hanging out in their IRC channel the other day. And I was chatting to Kipper, who's a guy that sold me mine, who actually makes a lot of the boards. And he was telling me that at the moment they're working on, in one of the future calls, which might be out very soon, having the full AGA chipset on board the Vampire, so you won't have to do that. It'll be passed through then. It'll all come out the HDMI port. Uh, but also with the Super AGA chipset, I mean, I've been trying out a few like um, 24-bit demos. Mm. And they just run so smoothly, you know, faster than they do on, like, my Amiga 4000 with an 060 and stuff on it. I need to come around your house and you need to make the video. I need to make the video, absolutely. (laughs) Well, it's like, honestly, the problem is, when I got it, first of all, I didn't just want to boot it up and do, like, oh, this is a benchmark. You want to get everything set up working on it. I wanted to get, like, Mac emulation on there. So so if you're a listener, you may get lost by our technical stuff, but this is the tiny, tiny section of what Dan has to do to create a video. So you're going to... Imagine the headache. Yeah, so I've been on this. with this for a month now. Um, there's a lot to do, but people have been asking, you know, when when is it going to be coming out for other Amigas? So I was chatting to the team in IRC the other day, um, and apparently they've got hold of some, um, you know, the CPU slot for the Amiga 4000? Yeah. They've found a few of those that they can buy for like $15. I'm so, in heaven. <laughs> yeah, so it could be on the way. They haven't confirmed anything yet. I think next platform is going to be the Amiga 500, then the 1200. Um, but apparently doing it for the 4000 and the higher-end Amigas is not going to be impossible. So they've actually sourced some of these. 
Excellent. Little uh, connectors. And I was chatting in IOC, they didn't know it was me, so or, or I was on the podcast, so <laughs> I don't know whether I was meant to announce that, but there you Secret go. news. I, d- yeah. I didn't sign anything, but yeah, so I mean, if you are interested in like, you know, where you can push an Amiga 2, I appreciate a lot of our listeners this week might be, you know, Nintendo fans wanting to hear about David Doak, but this is essentially, you know, pushing this old hardware into like the 21st century. You can, like, you can play videos on it, listen to it. Well, you know, or... this stuff may actually start to come out for Nintendos and Segas. There may be you know, something that you could stick in your Mega CD that will make it 100 times faster. <laughs> so you never know what can happen. Well, FPGA is amazing. So, I mean, before you'd have to go to the effort of, like, you know, um, actually make, making the silicon, wouldn't you? Whereas yeah. now, you know... Now you can program a board to do yeah. whatever you want. You can program these, like, chips to emulate or simulate. It's more like, isn't it, any other bit of hardware. So, And the cheap as well. Well, um, talking of David Doak as well, mm-hmm. I'm just going to mention a video which I have, which was... From 2003. This is how long I've known him. Yeah, it wasn't on YouTube then. No, no, it wasn't. I've, I've kind of reconverted it and put it up on my channel. But um, we started games events in Nottingham. Mm-hmm. And this was when the Dreamcast was coming out and stuff. So David was showing Time Splitters 2 off. Mm-hmm. And he actually came and played a Time Splitters 2 competition and lost against everyone. <laughs> it was really good. But there's some old school gaming footage in there. And, uh, you know, I'm going to be adding all of these old game events because we had we had some amazing people we had the founder of wikipedia there oh wow and people were going oh what's this hippie rubbish wikis yeah (laughs) yeah. never gonna take off yeah we had second life there and stuff so what was this show then what was it it's called screenplay which was all relating the um cinema Mm -hmm. world to the gaming world so it's kind of you know machinima we had the early machinima stuff so uh red versus blue Mm -hmm. were there you know the halo machinima yeah, stuff yeah, yeah. that they did and all these kind of early developments we had about uh dvd menus and interactive dvd menus well, I, did. <laughs> I didn't get my first dvd play till about then yeah about yeah yeah so that was when all the new features were coming in mm. like you know director's commentary so it was relating cinema to that and that kind of grew into an event that's called game city that was held in nottingham mm-hmm. uh that's a massive gaming event that's now turned into something giants. It's cool that you were filming all this stuff back then. What did you use to film it on? Was it all on DV tape? DV, yeah. yeah. So I've had to get my uh, Mac Pro with Firewire still. Then... Is it Pat Mac G5, do you mean? Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah and yeah. then send that out <laughs> and then uh, re-upload it in HD. Did you have your, your dodgy long hair then? Yeah. 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 Oh, I, <laughs> so, I love watching your old videos. <laughs> yeah, but this is, uh, you know, Paul Jewelry was also the yeah, guy yeah. from there. So we have a, a big tour of Paul Jewelry going through all the great machines and talking about you know why each game's influential mm. all the time so anyone that's um you know if you're listening to this i imagine you're going to be interested in david doke's uh, story so a bit of old school as well on, uh, yeah. on Ravi's youtube channel bit of classic stuff. we'll pop a link in the show notes at the retrohour.com and thank you for checking out episode number 19 of the retro hour 20 yeah. next week 20. can you believe we've been doing this for 20 weeks i know <laughs> where's this year gone it seems like we live here don't yeah. i think i see you more than my missus these days <laughs> so uh, thanks for checking out the show we'll be back again next friday for the big episode number 20 uh, of course you can download it every friday from the retrohour.com youtube it will be up on fridays from now on i was a bit late last week oh, uh, <laughs> and your favorite podcast client thank you so much for checking out the show guys and now for the next half an hour or so on the retro hour we hand you over to mr david doak from free radical and Red. We'll see you next Friday. Welcome to the Retro Hour, David. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. We want to start right at the beginning and get your story from the start. So, what was your first experience with computers? Um, That's a good question. I I, I remember it it was sitting in a darkened room at school with a research machine 380Z, which was a kind of box that looked like a flight case. I was doing A-level computers, A-level computer studies, which was is the only computing qualification I actually have. Mm-hmm. And you, you could book time to go and sit in the, this dark room with this machine. <laughs> Sounds very romantic. <laughs> and when we first did it, the only thing we kind of could do was to get a line printer to print out some ASCII art. So you would often come out with a picture of Snoopy or something mm-hmm. on, on line printer paper. So uh, time at school was spent <laughs> creating pictures and uh, ASCII stuff. Well, we, did, we didn't even create them. We, we kind of down, it was not downloaded. There were, there were some files on the disk that you could print out. Um, I mean, it was a very primitive 
machine, you know, really just a kind of um, text graphics. Um, and I, I can't even remember whether there were any games on it. And that was that was about 1983, I suppose, 83. And, and I guess at that time, at home, I had a, a kind of knockoff Pong um, video game console. I remember, I remember getting that because that, that, was, that was good enough that day to just not even bother going to the youth club in the evening. So <laughs> my, my brother and I just sat playing the wide selection of tennis, squash or football. Getting back to your career, I mean, um, before Rare, you actually studied, uh, studied biochemistry at Oxford. How do you go from doing that to getting into creating video games? Well, I guess before I went to college, I used to play a lot of Spectrum games with my brother. I mean, we didn't, we, we, we didn't ever really write anything decent. We just mucked about. Um, but we played everything. And then when I went to college, um, I probably spent a couple of years not really playing very many games, um, you know, just doing kind of uni stuff and things. Um, I, I, I did biochemistry. And the latter part of my degree, we did a project. And I did a project in a, a, a lab which calculated protein structures from nuclear magnetic resonance data. <laughs> um, but what was very interesting about that to me was that all, all, of the, all of the calculations were done on computers. This is kind of 1991. When you wanted to look at the molecules, you had to look at them on these really, really expensive computers because there, no, there were no desktop 3D graphics. This is kind of Windows 2 time. So Macs was, you know, a Mac was a luxury. And even Mac graphics were just kind of like, you know, one, well, 16-bit graphics, I guess, at the time. You could look at molecules again, again in a very dark room. On <laughs> spent a lot of your time in dark rooms. There's yeah? a bit of a theme, isn't there? Um, so on, on there were two, there were two, two types of machines. There was Evans and Sutherland machines, which were kind of vector graphics. So the vector graphics looked a bit like um, Space Jewel or Tempest, mm. except with molecules. And there were silicon graphics machines. So silicon graphics were the kind of darling of the 3D graphics world. So you, you would have these kind of big, big machines. And when I did my PhD, part of what I did was working with these machines and looking after them. Um, and I kind of had, I, as a in, in labs, people often do various jobs, pick up various things. You do a bit of teaching, you do your research. And I also did systems administration. The guy I shared an office with was one day we were looking through Edge magazine. Rare, who I knew from the old days of playing Spectrum games, were advertising for, they wanted someone to come, they needed a system manager to come and look after their network of silicon graphics machines um, because silicon graphics built the Nintendo 64. Mm -hmm. So the chap I shared an office with, Mike Smith, I mean, he, he used to actually write computer games. He, he was very, a great guy, always on the kind of cutting edge of stuff. So he was the first person I ever saw Doom being played. He, he got that up and running on a, on a machine we were supposed to be doing research on. Um, and also he was the first person to show me World Wide Web because he, he was within, within literally a month or so of coming out of CERN. He had installed a Mosaic browser and stuff and things, and we used to sit and look at that and go, well, this is interesting. I wonder if that will ever come to anything. <laughs> there's like 10 websites in the world or something. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It'll never catch on. It's really hard to find things, and there's only all this academic stuff on it. But, but he, I mean, he, he, was, he was very kind of up to the date and up to the minute with that. And I, I said to Mike, you know, you, 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 know you, you, you like computer games, you used to write them. Why don't you go and apply for this job at Rare? He's, and he kind of, well, um, maybe. I'm, not, I'm probably not. And then I just had a bad, well, not a bad day, but just had one of those kind of days where you question what you're doing. And I applied to Rare thinking I would go there and they wouldn't want anything, you know, go for an interview and they wouldn't want anything to do with me. Um, and I went. And as I've heard the other side of the interview from Martin Hollis, who interviewed me, I turned up. They were amazed that they'd found someone at all who knew Silicon Graphics management, um, system management, um, who seemed to actually have some nails about them and who liked games. And they, I left the interview thinking, well, yeah, that was fine, but they won't want me. And on their side, Martin said, well, he, yeah, he'd be brilliant, but there's no way he'll come and do this. <laughs> <laughs> and they, they, but yeah, but I did. So I went, I went, went to Rare. And I mean, that was, uh, that was interesting because before I left academia, I was working at one of the best funded labs for doing what we were doing. It was Oxford Centre for Molecular Sciences. And we thought we had loads of kit in terms of these silicon graphics machines. So 
I think I personally looked after about, I don't know, about a dozen of them possibly. And um, I went to Rare and they had, in a, in a much smaller space, had about 80 of these machines, including the really expensive ones that, you know, you know, you know when you look in a catalogue for things and it's like, oh, I wonder who buys those ones. The ones that cost 20 times more than everything else. And I went to Rare and they, and they, and they had these big render machines and all the artists, all the principal artists had a, then it was called an SGI Onyx, which was a, it's about the size of a tumble dryer. Mm-hmm. They had one of those under their desk. And little ultra, well, we call it was called the ultra then. So ultra sixty four controllers and stuff, and, and 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 they were and they were running all these great games. So they were run on the uh, silicon graphics before you actually saw a Nintendo sixty four. The the desktop machine that had a dev kit. It was called a SG Indie. They they they, tr- they tried to give them kind of cool names. <laughs> so there was the. The Indie, which was a desk, like I-N-D-Y, like Indiana Jones kind of nickname. And then there was the, there was the Onyx and the Crimson um, and, and the, big, the big render machines, which they used because Rare had started using silicon graphics when they did the SNES games like Donkey Kong, mm. which although they weren't 3D themselves, they were just sprite-based, all of the sprites were pre-rendered offline on SG machines. Um, and, and that was very that was very much their look of the time, and then and then the same machines were being used for now authoring polygonal three D assets for um, for the N sixty four, and the N sixty four at that time was a board like a you know like an old style kind of um, plug in PC board, breadboard that, 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 that fitted inside a um, an SG Indy. And we all had one of those. Well, you mentioned back then it was called the Ultra 64 at first, wasn't it? And I remember reading about it in magazines and it'd be on TV shows like Games Master and Bad Influence. And like, it seemed like it was around, you know, the rumors were going around for about three years until the system finally came out. How much development did you kind of see on it? And um, was it kind of hard to keep tight-lipped about a lot of those developments back then? Well, I I only came into Rare, I guess, it, I'm trying to remember when it was. It was 1995, I think. Yeah, so it was, they were already probably about a year and a half into development on on the Ultra 64. And I think actually when 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 I when I arrived it was just it was the end of the summer I think because they were just about to go to the the Shishinkai show which is a Japanese show and I think if you if you look online on YouTube now there actually are some old videos um, and the, and they showed at the time I think there was some some golden eye, but it was kind of on rails at the time, and there was some of what became blast core. Um, it was not difficult to be tight lipped at rare because you were in a farm in the middle of nowhere in Tycoon. <laughs> right. <laughs> and 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 actually at the time, rare had one. I mean, it had uh, dedicated dial up lines to the states for sending ROMs, but internet access was one was one one line. Um, and, and and nobody had internet access to the desk. Uh, I mean I, I was in a slightly privileged position because I was sysadmin, so I, I could um, I, I could go online because we had to go online to, to do stuff with running machines and stuff and things. And that's, that's quite funny. I remember actually distinctly one day because it was because the PlayStation was coming out and that was all very exciting and hotly anticipated. And I think there was it was when Resident Evil became exclusive on PlayStation. No, no, it was Final Fantasy, wasn't it? Final yeah, Fantasy, yeah. yeah. Final Fantasy would have been on all platforms, but then it went exclusive or something. And I had seen it online on some bulletin board online, and I remember mentioning it to Tim Stamper or somebody. No, I mentioned it to somebody else, and then Tim came around and said, "How did you know about that?" I said, well, "It was online," and and they just they you know they and it was funny actually because they rare didn't really do online, whereas I had come from academia where we were on what was then called Super Janet before it became it was the UK internet backbone, and and we were online all the time, and there was a game called X Pilots. Which you should you should look up. We used to play it online with teams, which were just kind of you know ad hoc teams with people in America and whatever. It was, it's kind of like um, it looked a bit like Thrust, but it was multiplayer. Yeah, I'm looking at it now from 1991. Apparently, yeah, that was that was brilliant. That, that used to be a regular evening slot for us playing that, and and, and it had it had it, it's funny. It had really fully featured deathmatch games and team-based games you had to move things around and shoot everyone there was nobody on the internet so it was well 
relatively nobody on the internet. So it was quite fast. So um, being system up, how did this lead to you working on GoldenEye then? Yeah, I, I had access to almost everywhere in Red, which was again was unusual because all of the teams had access to the barn, uh, the office offices. It was they were called barns because it was a farm. Um, they had access to where they worked, and they didn't have access to other people's barns. I mean, everyone used to meet up for lunch and stuff and things, but you didn't generally see what was going on elsewhere. And I, and I, I got to go everywhere because I was going around helping people fix things when things were broken or whatever. And I, funny, I mean, I guess that was another reason when they were looking for someone to do the job, they wanted someone they could trust. And, and I mean, the interview that came across, I was, I, I was trustworthy, I guess. And I, I'd done it for about... I don't know, it was probably about six, eight months, six months maybe. And it really started to grate with me because it was a bit like being in Willy Wonka's sweet factory, but, you know, you, you were the guy who, <laughs> I don't know, who went around and adjusted the, the screens or something. And, and also from talking to people and getting to know people, it kind of being very, it became very obvious to me that, you know, I, I was as certainly as capable as they were uh, of, of thinking about designing games. I mean, it wasn't... You know, I played games, but, you know, you talk to people and you say, oh, well, no, that's good or that's bad or do you like this game? I actually was kind of working my way toward leaving because although I enjoyed it, I was kind of thinking, well, maybe I should go back to academia. So I was, I was, I was, going, to, I was going to go a friend who was then in New Zealand. I can't, can't come to New Zealand. That sounded quite good because Twycross was... It, you know, it's it's not it's not Lord of the Rings country. <laughs> it's the Midlands, um, and 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 that you know that sounded very interesting. And and what happened was because I didn't think the way I guess people at Rare thought. Um, this this friend faxed me through some details of some job in in New Zealand, and and it came through the Rare fax machine. And immediately, so I said, what's all this about? <laughs> Martin Hollis, who I got to know quite well, was saying, well, you know, why wouldn't you want to stay here? I said, well, I'd, you know, I'd like to make the games, but I'm, I'm not a programmer. Mm-hmm. And, and he basically said, well, no, I'd like, I'd like you to be on the Goldmine team because you can do some coding. Well, you know, you can pick up some coding there, but I'm sure there's stuff you can do which is, you know, design or coding based. So that's what I ended up doing. When you got yeah. the license to do the GoldenEye game, I mean, um, how much kind of influence did uh, MGM kind of have? Like, when you got the license, was there any stipulation of how the game had to play or anything like that, or was it? They got the license. I mean, that all happened before I went to Rare. But as I understand it, the game license was not seen as a money spinner. It was just one of these ancillary rights that they found out. The profit that they expected to get was the money that was paid upfront as a license fee plus whatever, and. The bond license was there, but they were, I think they were going to make some side-scrolling platformer thing, you know, a kind of don- Donkey Kong bond, I guess. Some um, bad and, movie tie-in. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It would just be your standard movie tie-in, something reskinned. Like Ocean used to. Like Ocean, yeah, like the endless kind of, you know, I mean, actually, I was going to say Robocop. The Robocop one wasn't that bad, actually, mm-hmm. but yeah, but that kind of thing, you know, fairly straightforward mechanics. And 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 Martin, I mean, this this is Martin's story, really, but I'm quite familiar with it. He 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 said, "Well, I'll, I'll do it, but I'll do it if it can be 3D, like Virtua Cop." And and that's what it was. When when I got there, it was Virtua Cop. And I guess in the, in the time before I moved on to the team, must be pretty much contemporary with that. It slid into being um, first person shooter. So it was a light gun game. At the first, well, it would, it, you didn't have a light gun, but you had a controller, and the controller, you know, you you used the you used the the analog controller to aim, and all of the player movement was prescripted, and that's why. So there, there are a couple of core elements of Goldeneye which completely come from that. One is the character animation because that's a big part of Virtual Cop. You know, the, all the characters leaping out from places. And yeah, the famous running. <laughs> the famous running. <laughs> and the, um, the location-based hits, because that was a thing. The headshots were part of it, mm-hmm. location-based stuff. Well, uh, little did they know that it would sell over 8 million units. Um, why did you think it was so successful? It was kind of... A lot of things came together at once. I mean, it was... Effectively, it was a very inexperienced team. Uh, you know, we didn't we didn't have any... And, and I mean, I mean, an experience in terms of we didn't have any baggage of kind of preconceptions of what the game design might be. It wasn't an iteration on anything. It was just we'll make this and we'll make it good. 
and and the team had a bunch of people who were all a bit perfectionist. So we would just fiddle continually with things to make them better. And and it was it's it's funny I mean, at the at the time I mean, it was really enjoyable, but it was very very hard work. I mean, we spent a lot of time in the office, and people would just very naturally riff off what other people were doing. I mean, an example I'm sure I've given before is is so I primarily ended up doing um, the AI scripting and single player setup. When I started doing that, there was there was really only one setup in place for a single player level, which was Seven Eye Bunker. For, for, for ages, it was just the test bed was that start of that bunker level where you start off in the silo and you step through a door and there's a guy who tries to set the alarm off. Um, and, and it's quite funny, around that part of that level, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of little test beds for things which were reused all over the place. You know, so that's what I was doing. And as I started to try to put the story of the film into the levels, it became more and more clear that objectives would require some kind of more NPC interaction than just being shot or shooting at you. So I would say to Mark, could we possibly do this? And he would would often just look at me and go, "Uh, not sure. Because it was a small team and because as a result of that and the size of the code base and because only two people were really coding on it at the time, just before Steve came, very agile, you'd come in the next morning and Mark would say, oh, I've done that. Do you want to try it? Yeah, and he would just add features. You know, so it 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 was completely organic, iterative design and you can do that in a relatively small team um when steve ellis came onto the team i mean that was brilliant hire because they picked up a absolutely phenomenal programmer steve was basically multiplayer lead and well he no, he did he actually he did all explosions and stuff and things like that a lot of things which are very um iconic to the game because that was that was we we, we always had besides stepping but we, we always had a few things running through our heads and it was always John Woo films were thing everything that gets shot explodes in some way or, <laughs> yeah. or bits of paper. It created that kind of arcadey feel to FPS, which um, was really unique for the first console kind of FPSs. I mean there wasn't there wasn't really much else on console. I mean I guess Medal of Honor on the PlayStation came out reasonably close. And then our big the thing which we was to worry about all the way through was what Turok was going to be like. I mean, it seems like a thousand years ago now because at the time there was no easy way to preview what was coming. Trade shows gave you a kind of three to four monthly snapshot maybe of what other people might be working on. You couldn't go on the internet and look at videos of stuff and people didn't really talk about things before they were done. So we knew Turok was coming and we'd occasionally see some shonky video taken at some show of it but we had no idea how feature rich it was or what it would be like i mean it it it, it turned out to be very different to what we were doing i mean the feature set of bond of, of goldeneye i think martin ties it very specifically to seeing uh, mario 64 and the objective structure of mario 64 where you you know you revisit a level to do more so we decided that we would have multiple objectives and have objectives that weren't part of the main compulsory arc to the level and, and spread those over the difficulties and you know you're trying to spin out what limited verbs of interaction the player has with the game so you can shoot things you can destroy things you can pick things up you can sorry was this when the kind of modes like proximity mines and golden gun and all well, of this well that that's i mean that's the multi the multiplayer was just a that was just us collectively throwing whatever irons we could into the fire and seeing if they were. I mean, things like there are particular things which I think we did very well, which, again, just drew out of playing the game. I mean, the sniper rifle, the sniper rifle was was pretty much original at the time. I think um, MDK came out with a sniper rifle about the same time, but it was a kind of parallel invention almost. Um, the mines are, you know, the mines, I think, just started as something as an idea, and then they just become hilarious in multiplayer. 
Yeah, on the bottom of the stairs, I used to. Yeah. <laughs> I think for me, I mean, you know, the campaign on Goldeneye was amazing, but obviously the multiplayer, I think, is the fondest memories in most yeah. of the fans. And the fact that it was the first time I'd ever seen like a four-player four, four player at once FPS. Or a shooting um, game on Nintendo. Well, yeah, I mean, it. that was true, but it's like, um, d- did you guys actually play the game in multiplayer much then at Rare? We played it continually. I mean, that's another reason that it's good is that we played it. You can't make a game that you don't... Well, you can't make a good game that you don't enjoy. Uh, and and, and, and we, just, we just played it continually. Um, and then, and then once, once the multiplayer build was available to the other people at Rare, so other teams, when we were in testing, they would play it in the, in the evenings as well. So, so it got, it got, it got a, lot of, a lot of good testing, a lot of good feedback. I mean, I mean one of the things... Another thing that Gold I benefited from was absolutely brilliant testing from Nintendo, um, both in Japan and in, um, in, in the States. Well, Ravi mentioned then as well that, you know, it was kind of seeing a shooting game on a Nintendo platform was, you know, I even remember when Mortal Kombat came out and you had to censor the blood and stuff on the... I, I, don't, I don't really know how that happened because mm-hmm. it, it was strange. In fact, probably it's lost to posterity now, but there was, there was an early ROM of Goldeneye, which I remember Martin showing to me at one, one point, um, which was just a kind of test bed. And, and it had this ridiculous sprites but particle blood gushing. Yeah, it was, it was, a, thing, it was a thing that you couldn't do in the end because it was just too, too performance intensive. The violence in it was, was an enormous step up from what had been done before. And I think, it, in fact, that was, you asked about MGM, that was the only time we had quite late in development. It was all, but, I mean, I, I should remember it. it was all but finished because the day they came, I was doing something with the, one of the bonus levels with the Aztec level. And these guys came, a couple of suits from MGM, I think. And, and they, at the time, I think they, they had just published some interactive CD-ROM bond encyclopedia or something. So they came to see this. And um, <laughs> they... It just consistent of them going around saying, "You can't do that." So it was first of all, well, you can't, you can't have Connery and Roger Moore in it because they'll want money, so that can come out for a start. Mm. And then it was, when you shoot these guys, they look like they've been hurt. Yes, and I said, "Well, Bond, Bond doesn't do that." So they, they kind of, they were going through. There was a bit, you know, it was a time. This is, you know. 90s, there, there, there was a backlash against, I mean, there's always a backlash against some particular kind of violence, but I think they were particularly trying to clean up Bond. They didn't like the idea that Bond would inflict suffering on people. And if you, and yeah, if you, if you, if you got the right hit reaction, it looked like the guy was suffering. And, and that was, again, that was interesting because it was, you know, if, if you watch some of the early Bond films and in the books, Bond's quite callous. Yeah, he's got a license to kill and nobody comes and checks whether, he, <laughs> whether it was justified afterwards. Show that just, license. Well, it's, it's a license to kill. It's like, you know, why'd you kill him? Well, I've got a license. Um, so Howard Lincoln used to be the president of the NOA, so Nintendo of America. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was a he was originally a lawyer um, and he was ex, ex-military. I think he championed... He I remember we went one time to, to meet with him um, and someone was saying, it's like, you know, Goldeneye, that's, that's the only game when there was some testing that Howard ever played. And, he, and he, it wasn't that he was, you know, some gun-wielding psychopath. He just... He, he didn't play video games, but... That engaged him on some level. Uh, you moved on to Perfect Dark, which was using the same engine as Goldeneye, and mm. that kind of triggered a lot of staff leaving and stuff um, uh, to form Free Radical. What happened there exactly? Well, I mean, what happened was the Goldeneye team were, I mean, we were all kind of graduates. We'd all be university, and, 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 and we, all, we all knew friends who you know, were doing well as entrepreneurs, um, making their own way. And, I mean, Rare, Rare was a fantastic, fantastic place. It, was, you know, it, it, had, it had a hierarchy which was based around Tim and Chris um, and, and, and also the people who'd been there from, 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 from the start. And I guess in a way it was, it was, it was harder to move up to that hierarchy if you came in later. Yeah, and, and, and we were all, I mean, we all worked really hard on Goldmine, and I guess, you know, we, and we, we had some financial reward from it, uh, you know, but we were very aware <laughs> of the amount of money that it had generated elsewhere. Mm-hmm, yeah. So, so it was a bit like, you know, okay, well, where do we go next? At Rare, where we went next was making another one. So, you know, we were a bit, I guess, it's, you know, 
but thinking about maybe doing something else. And I know Martin was thinking about doing something else. And I would have drunken conversations with Martin and whatever. And actually, I mean, it, it, it's more Martin's story. But Martin, Martin was going to do something on his own, and 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 I think no, I think we, I think he broached the idea that Rare would have some subsidiary or something that we would. Mm-hmm. It wasn't, it wasn't amenable <laughs> to, 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 to the powers of be. And then Martin, Martin left, and the, you know, he he was quite tightly contracted to Rare, so he, we we didn't expect he'd be able to go and work easily anywhere else. You know, have a gardening leave period. But he was able to go and work for Nintendo, so that's what he did. So he, Martin, Martin went to work on the development of the GameCube. When you were developing games for the N64, I mean, you mentioned the PlayStation before, which um, obviously was a disc-based medium. Did you find there was limitations, and did you maybe think it was a mistake that the N64 used cartridges? Well, it, it, yeah, it, it was Nintendo's model. You know, the cartridge commanded a premium, and they and they were quite tied to the idea of the cartridge. Obviously, it was smaller. I mean, the GoldenEye ROM—I can't remember what it is. Is it? It's like ten megs or something. It's, mm-hmm. it's not big. Um, but when you plug it in, switch it on, it starts playing, <laughs> and that was and that was quite telling, particularly when you looked at the loading on a lot of the um, uh, PlayStation games. I mean, uh, the classic one of the time was, was Resident Evil, wasn't it? I mean, with the you still watch the door, yeah. <laughs> and, and then you'd accidentally go through a door, and you go, "Oh no, no, I need to go back." Disc loading door. like crazy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So you know, and 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 cartridges, you know, they they they're quite robust. I mean, I've still got a couple of Goldeneye cartridges, and they 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 still work. Do you still play the game much? I've got it out a couple of times when people have asked me about it. I suppose I've my my daughters are kind of of an age where they could play it, but it's not fashion based <laughs> you, you can't you can't customize your avatar or buy its clothes or do its hair or anything <laughs> hair and makeup so it, it kind of misses a trick in that in that point of view i mean the way i mean the most the most telling difference between it and well and probably the same applies to time splitters games is is you know we when we made those games we tried to put everything that we would want as a consumer in the game so all of the things that are now DLC were in the game. Yeah, that's what I was going to say because um, moving on to Time Splitters, yeah. uh, you moved on to the PS too. You had kind of analog controls, all the customizable controls in there as well. This is really complete package. Yeah, uh, and and I guess I mean on the original Time Splitters, we 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 made them because we because we'd come from N64 with only the one analog stick. The controls in Goldeneye and and in the original Time Splitters. Um, the the movement and look are split across the sticks. So in Goldeneye, the, the movement, yeah. So if you if you so in Goldeneye, it's kind of got a you know on on the C stick, it's forward backwards and turn left and turn right, as opposed to forward backwards and strafe left and strafe right. And that's just that's that was the only way it felt like it worked with with having to use the buttons as well. And also, actually, there was a lot of I remember a lot of feedback from Japan. The Japanese market did not play first-person shooters. People had trouble. That I mean, it seems again, it seems bizarre to talk about it now. But people had trouble with the circle strafing idea for sliding around corners. Mm-hmm. So they wanted to go up to the corner and then turn. So you push to go toward the corner, and then as you go past the corner, you'd push right or left, and you'd turn. So you kind of point, point and go, point and go, point and go. Tank controls, and the so, yeah, yeah, that was kind of the model. And and because because we had all played with those controls so much, that was kind of our preferred method of controlling. So on time splitters one, I think the default control method splits the strafe uh, and move with the look across the sticks. Um, and we used to argue with people all the time about it, and that they were they were actually right. <laughs> did you like the N sixty four controller? I did like it. There's things about it in retrospect which are really fun. Like it's got three prongs because they're not really sure whether the analog stick's going to work. So <laughs> yeah. so so if it's just going to be some kind of appendage that sits in the middle that you don't use, then you know you can just hold it on the outside and you're back to a proper button controller. I'm very fond that, of that controller. Well, just, just just because I spent a long time with it. In my head. Uh, we noticed your last project 
uh, with Free Radical was Hayes. Well, it was a very different thing. I mean, that, that, that's what happens when you start to not make the game you want to make because you're making the game to ensure that there's continuity for the company, <laughs> I guess. Um, since, I mean, when we, when we made the Time Splitters games, we were making completely what we wanted to make and making it up often as we went along. We managed to we managed to keep even even on Future Perfect and a, a large team. If somebody had a good idea and it was doable, we'd try and do it. If somebody had a funny joke and it was funny, we'd try to put it in. The haze was was that they would say, "This seems to be really popular, but we're not really sure how to market it, and 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 and, and we don't really get the cartoony thing about it, particularly in America. I don't, I don't get why 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 is it why does it have to look so goofy?" And, and that was, I mean, that was relentless. I, mean, I used to go and do the press tour, so I'd go to the States and go to see all the magazines, I mean, because the print magazines were still really, really important then. And the guys at the magazines loved it. Mm. You know, they, they loved the silliness. They completely got it. And then you'd talk to people, the publishers, and, you know, often the people who were the enthusiasts, as in the kind of frontline PR people, would get it. And then you'd start talking to people in marketing and they wouldn't get it. They, 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 they were able to sell a very narrow, particular thing. That's one of the things I, I regret, is not, is, is, is not being more belligerent about that and saying, well, no, I don't really want to try and do very serious games because i much rather do these silly ones. Even when things like Team Fortress started coming out, which was clearly silly, yeah. <laughs> and now, I mean, there's all this... Particularly in the last, I guess, the last five years, people come, oh, this is amazing, this fresh, fresh, cartoony art style, da 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 reminiscent of Time Splitters. Mm-hmm. Well, whatever happened to that? <laughs> but we went through a time where literally, even though Time Splitters 2 was, it used to be on game, game, game rankings or Metacritic now, I guess, across the board, it was, you know, top three action FPS on all the platforms and people would just say to you oh yeah but you know it's, it needs to be more serious yeah it's very strange because it was one of the top PlayStation 2 FPSs I think it was probably the top yeah it was a top I think it was a top TS2 and Future Perfect and then on Xbox obviously Halo would be the one that people would rate but we were rated there as well and on GameCube well, one thing that I noticed was as well, um, Star Wars Battlefront 3 was cancelled when it was 99% complete. That must have been devastating. I think 99% is somewhat of an exaggeration. Okay, <laughs> that's um, Wikipedia. You know. Yeah, um, the company made Haze, um, and that was on, on, on the transition from PlayStation 2 to PlayStation 3 and um, X360. We were, you know, we were bold enough to go into that transition and to say we will make our own technology as we have done before, you know, and and and, and we will and we will make make great games as we've done before. I don't think we were the only people to find that transition to be hard, and and I, and I think if you look, I mean, it, it, it's a while ago now, but if you look look across all of the publishers, a lot of the publishers' internal teams completely screwed up in that transition, which is why you saw so many games suddenly being Unreal Engine. People were still trying to build their own tech and it was getting harder and there were more mistakes. If you were part of a, if you were, if you were an internal team and a publisher, first party, then, or second party, I guess that is, um, then, then the publisher would be able to, you know, allow you to retool and to use more, you know, to use a, a, a commercial engine. We weren't in that position, so on Haze, we ended up spending a lot of the time building and rebuilding and fixing our technology, and that ultimately meant that there wasn't time to make as good a game, and it was tied into, uh, you know, it slipped, but everything slipped. <laughs> um, but it was, you know, once it was tied into release schedule, it had to go, and, yeah, it was it was not the game that we wanted to make. And then we had LucasArts approach us, and that seemed a brilliant a brilliant thing because we were going to I mean I, I'm not a massive Star Wars fan myself mm-hmm. but you know games industry is full of people who live and breathe Star Wars so it was a, a, a massive motivational thing to be for people to be working with. One of the biggest franchises in the world isn't it? Yeah and our thinking there was well if we're doing this it's okay it's not ours 
we, we'd always we'd always said work on your own thing. It's not our thing, but if you're going to work on somebody else's thing, it's a pretty good example of a thing to be working on. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's not obscure, but again, I mean, we had our own technical problems, but I think we were in in the case of Battlefront, we were getting on top of them. People were working very hard, and I think we were making inroads into a, in, into what would be a very good game. Um, but we didn't realize that LucasArts was kind of about to self-destruct. I mean, and we were one of the first casualties of that, but they went on to dismantle themselves. <laughs> um, you know, and again, I, I imagine the motivation was purely good business. You know, Lucasfilm was preparing itself for a sale, which we didn't know at the time, I guess. Um, so it was streamlining and getting rid of the things which were more capricious kind of you know, not guaranteed return or more risky on paper. So that ultimately made that deal go away, even though we were completely dependent on it. And that's what sunk Free Radical. That game, though, I mean, you'd worked on it for two years and I keep seeing, you know, every now and then something will crop up, like, you know, a screen grab or a render or there'll be like, you know, some video or something like that. What was the state of the game in the end then? It was, yeah, it was... I think saying it was 95% done is, is definitely an exaggeration, but it was... It was moving toward being something which was, you know, was was past beta, so going to be going, going to be polished up for, for for release, and and it had it had some really good stuff in it. I mean, you know, it, it had it had a Star Wars story which was very true to the kind of heroic journey spirit of Star Wars and the whole kind of um, black and white um, alignment thing of it, and it threaded itself, I thought, very well through. Um, through the mythology, you know, it was that part of it was the first person of a, of a, of a single player story game, which was not part of um, the EA Battlefront that came out. Yeah. So, have you got any of the code or anything on a hard disk or a DVD or anything at your place? <laughs> no, I've got absolutely nothing to do with it. When I when I when, when, I, when I left that, I I was I yeah, I never wanted to see anything to do with Star Wars. <laughs> well, there's that rumor cleared up. <laughs> it's not in his attic. Yeah, <laughs> no, not in my attic. Not my attic. Well, after Free Radical, then obviously it's been a few years now. Time has flown. And um, what are you up to these days, then, David? <laughs> what do I do now? I live in Norfolk. Um. And I've I, I've spent the last years watching my girls go through school. What I do, which is most like a job, is is working with the local school, um, teaching computing to primary school kids. Um, and 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 we make we make little games. We play with robots and that kind of stuff. And um, I, I think that's probably one of the ways I'm most likely to influence the future of the video game industry is to spark is to spark a fire in somebody else well David it's been fascinating talking to you we could talk to you all night honestly it's been you know <laughs> amazing getting your stories and uh, you know for a couple of guys that used to play your games back in the day it's just uh, you know hearing the inside story has been amazing and it's great that you're inspiring a new generation as well so uh, thank you so much for coming on the show David we really appreciate it yeah, thank you great. guys thank you